I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, I on Alabama. How a recent ruling on the personhood of frozen embryos is playing out in the race for the White House. Conscious protection. Pro-life lawmakers zero in on the Pentagon's abortion policy. We're on Capitol Hill. Push for peace. Analysis of the efforts for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. And a light reminder, Pope Francis reminds the faithful of the power of always seeking out our Lord. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Alexander. Our top story tonight in a blistering memo released today, the Biden administration warns in vitro fertilization is under attack and it is blaming the U.S. Supreme Court and Republican politicians for what happened in Alabama, where the state Supreme Court ruled frozen embryos are children under state law. The Catholic Church says IVF is immoral and wrong. But President Joe Biden, the second Catholic president in U.S. history, supports it. And he's not alone. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, good evening to you. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre ripped Republicans for pro-life efforts to protect the unborn. One of the key issues when life begins, which of course for Catholics is at the very moment of conception. Now, former President Donald Trump made it clear where he stands on IVF in vitro fertilization. And you might be surprised how his position compares to that of President Biden. President Joe Biden did not stop to answer questions as he left the White House, but a short while later on Air Force One, his press secretary tears into Republicans over in vitro fertilization. When the Supreme Court took the outrageous step of overturning Roe v. Wade, it paved the road for Republican elected officials to pursue their extreme agenda. And she says since the Alabama decision came down last week, families seeking fertility treatment are left in limbo, not sure what to do next, adding... Doctors are afraid of prosecution, fertility clinics are halting operations, and families in other states are worried they might be targeted next. Under my leadership, the Republican Party will always support the creation of strong, thriving, healthy American families. Former President Donald Trump also comes out in support of IVF. We want to make it easier for mothers and fathers to have babies, not harder. That includes supporting the availability of fertility treatments like IVF in every state in America. Trump calls on Alabama lawmakers to preserve IVF. His Republican rival also wants fertility treatments to continue. Nikki Haley says she believes an embryo is a baby and she wants parents to decide how they're going to handle those embryos. But IVF goes against Catholic Church teaching. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops points out that with IVF, children are subjected to quality control and eliminated if found defective, adding, while a little baby may ultimately be born because of this procedure, other lives are usually snuffed out in the process. Also tonight, another very controversial issue and one that could impact or decide the election in November, and that is the U.S. southern border. On Thursday, President Biden and former President Trump are both headed to the southern border, Biden to Brownsville, Texas, and Trump to Eagle Pass. Meanwhile, President Biden is considering executive actions to help stop the flow of migrants into the U.S. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. 
Meanwhile, in New York, the former president's lawyers filed an appeal in Trump's civil fraud case. Earlier this month, the judge found that Donald Trump lied about his wealth as he expanded his real estate empire, ordering him to pay $355 million in penalties right now with interest that figure stands at $454 million. In today's filing, that appeals court is being asked to decide whether the judge committed errors of law and or fact, and whether he abused his discretion or acted in excess of his jurisdiction. Well, in less than 24 hours, Republican and Democratic voters will head to the polls in Michigan to vote in the presidential primary. And a Biden-Trump matchup is looking more and more likely, especially after the South Carolina primary this past weekend. Trump easily won over the state's former governor, Nikki Haley, bringing him one step closer to the GOP nomination. Despite losses in Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina, Nikki Haley insists that she will remain in the race. And for more, let's bring in Andrew Walworth, host of the Real Clear Politics show on Sirius XM, which launched just today. Andrew, good to be with you. Congratulations on the show. A lot to unpack here. But first, let's talk about Nikki Haley. I mean, she says she is staying in the race, even though she has lost every state so far, including her home state. Why do you think she's staying in the race? And is there any state that she can win? Well, no. The short answer is I don't think there is a state she can win. Tomorrow she is uh, in our RCP average. Uh, we predict that uh, it's 69 percent Trump, 17.3 percent for Nikki Haley. So uh, even a worse performance than in her own state of South Carolina. Two weeks from now, from now, we've got Super Tuesday. There's 15 states, 16 states, rather, that will be uh, holding primaries. She's not favored in any of them. So, no, I, I think she, there's not a state she can win. I mean, you never want to say never in politics. Anything can happen. But right now, all bets are that there's not a state she, she wins going into the convention. Now, the question of why she's yeah, doing it is an interesting one. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say the answer yeah, to the question of why no, she's No, that's staying okay. In. Continue, Andrew. Yeah. Why she's staying in uh, again. Uh, you know, there, there's there's an argument to stay in if she believes that something might happen with Trump. Uh, that's always a possibility. Any anything can happen in politics and she would be an alternative. A lot of people think now that what she's doing is trying to set a marker down that if Trump loses in November and she keeps predicting his loss, that she will be uh, able to lead the party back from sort of. Uh, Trumpism to some sort of more conservative mainline Republican uh, stance that might uh, might win a couple of elections. Yeah, and apologies for that interruption, Andrew. Um, after that South Carolina loss, Americans for Prosperity Action, as you know, uh, that's the network that backed her by billionaire Charles Koch. Uh, they're pausing their funding of Haley's campaign. That's pretty significant. So, you know, where does this leave her? Well, it is significant. Um, she claims that they were not providing financial support. They were pro providing logistical report, uh, support. And she's also, I think she raised about a million bucks since uh, uh, just in the last couple uh, days after the uh, South Carolina primary. So she has money. She can stay in. Uh, it's never good when a big network like the Coke Network pulls out uh, or pauses their uh, support. But... Uh, you know, the campaign will go until she decides to stop it. I mean, it's really it's really her decision when she be, when she ends this thing. Yeah, and let's talk about former President Trump now. Obviously, the the clear front runner here. Um, that said, are there any groups that maybe he isn't pulling well with? 
Uh, yes. I mean, he, he has trouble in the suburbs. Uh, he has trouble among women. Uh, there were some disturbing exit numbers for him, at least, coming out of South Carolina, where a fair number of uh, Haley's voters uh, said that under no circumstances would they vote for, for Donald Trump. Um, there also was, I think, about 36 percent who said that they, uh, of all the voters in the South Carolina, who said that they wouldn't vote for him if he's convicted of a crime. Or they, they said that he was unfit for the presidency if he was convicted of a crime. Those are not good numbers for him. And I think that his campaign is probably looking at those pretty carefully. You do have a very divided Republican Party. I think that's what you're seeing. And as Haley herself has said, that 40 percent vote that she got in South Carolina, while that's not a good performance um, uh, and less than she had wanted, 40 percent of, uh, of the primary vote in a state like that is not nothing. It uh, shows that the president, uh, former president has some weaknesses and he's got some ground to make up with those groups that like Haley. And those are moderates, sort of old line uh, conservative Republicans and, and a lot of women, a lot of suburban women. Andrew, almost out of time here, but real quick, uh, uh, both President Biden and former President Trump, they're going down to the southern border on Thursday how big of an issue is immigration during this election? And which one of those candidates do you think has the upper hand here? Well, I think uh, it's a huge issue. It's always it's always a big issue. It's a bigger, bigger issue this year than in the past. It's probably the number two issue uh, after the economy and, and may surpass it. Uh, but between now and uh, November, depending on what happens. So very important. I think uh, all polls show that Trump has the upper hand there. Biden's trying to turn that around. Uh, but he's got three years of record on the border that he's running against. going to be tough. All right. We're going to leave it right there. Andrew, always great to be with you. Thank you so much for weighing in. We appreciate it. Thanks, Tracy. Well, as Trump moves towards another presidential nomination and is exerting power in the GOP, there is a changing of the guard at the Republican National Committee. Ronna McDaniel will leave her post on March the 8th after the Super Tuesday matchups. In a statement, McDaniel wrote, the RNC has historically undergone change once we have a nominee, and it has always been my intention to honor that tradition. Former President Trump has endorsed North Carolina GOP chair Michael Watley to succeed her. He also backs his daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, as co-chair. Well, the Supreme Court will take up challenges to state laws that could affect how Facebook, TikTok, and X and other social media platforms are regulated. The challenges are to laws signed in 2021 in Florida and in Texas. Both were signed after former President Donald Trump's accounts were removed by Facebook and Twitter, now known as X, following the January 6th riot at the Capitol. When initially signed, these laws were touted to uphold free speech after fears that conservatives were being censored. The Biden administration is siding with the challengers. On new developments tonight in the push for a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas, there are reports a new hostage deal with Hamas could be within reach. The talks took place over the weekend in Paris. The Times of Israel says the deal would feature a six-week truce and the release of around 40 hostages, including women, children, female soldiers, and the elderly. The discussions included representatives from Israel, the United States, Egypt, and Qatar. 
And joining us now to talk more about this is Aaron David Miller, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a former Middle East peace negotiator with the State Department. Aaron, good to see you again. Thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. So talk to us more about this meeting and what do you think the likelihood is that a deal could actually be reached? You know, nobody ever lost money betting against a, a hopeful outcome in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But I, I really do believe that uh, there's a, uh, probably the best chance that uh, we've had since the uh, mid-November uh, interim release, limited release, um, for a return of hostages for a large number of Palestinian prisoners. Uh, I think pressure on both sides are mounting. Hamas clearly is under military pressure, uh, both in Han Yunus and in Rafah. Uh, and they're also under pressure from their constituencies, that is to say, Palestinians in Gaza, who have long suffered as a consequence of Hamas's terror surge on October 7th. So I think that they want relief, and I think part of this deal will be a surge of humanitarian assistance badly needed into Gaza. And perhaps even the return of civilians um, to northern Gaza, uh, although there's not much left for them to go back to. On the Israeli side, I think um, pressure is bonding as well. There are 134 hostages, the Israeli calculate. 30 of them are probably no longer alive. They were either killed on October 7, their bodies taken back to Gaza for trade, or they died in captivity. So the longer uh, this goes on without a resolution for the hostages, their condition, physical and emotional, mental condition, increasingly fraught. Netanyahu really does continue to say that despite this potential deal, I guess the attacks on Rafah and southern Gaza are imminent. Aaron, talk to us more about that. Why does he seem to be pressing forward now? From the prime minister's perspective, on trial for bribery, fraud and breach of trust in the Jerusalem district court, frankly, the longer this war goes on, the more, the better his prospects for beating this trial and achieving some significant gain in addition to free hostages. So he has a stake, I think, and arguably some within the Israeli military may be arguing for a uh, a major ground incursion into Rafah. But I don't see any Israeli plan that would be acceptable to the administration that has demanded one that would allow the Israelis to operate without moving over a million people from Rafah. Gaza is already one of the most densely populated areas on the planet. Moving people into safer corridors or safe zones where there is potable water, sanitation, food, medical facilities to care for them. So without a plan to evacuate hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in Rafah, any ground campaign is almost certain, look at the last five months, to lead to a grievous injury and large and exponential rise in Palestinian civilian deaths. So it's far from, far from certain, in my mind, that the Israelis are intending to go ahead with this. Uh, but in the end, events, I think, will drive the train here, and we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Aaron, almost out of time, but how do you see this ending, and what happens to Gaza after all of this? I really don't see an end right now, and I don't think um, I, I will be the first to suggest that it, it's very difficult to divine a um, a permanent and conflict-ending solution in Gaza. Hamas will not be destroyed. It's going to take years and an estimated $50 billion to reconstruct Gaza. 
the Israelis will not leave Gaza. They'll create a buffer zone uh, unless they get a some sort of security regime that would prevent another October 7. All right. We're going to leave it right there. Aaron, thank you so much for your time today. Always appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, after 18 months of delays, Sweden has cleared the final hurdle in becoming a member of NATO. Today, Hungary finally voted to ratify Sweden's bid to join the military alliance. Prime Minister Viktor Orban has close ties to Vladimir Putin and stalled the vote for months. Sweden applied for membership after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Orban's decision to allow the vote followed a visit by the Swedish prime minister. While at least 15 people were killed during Sunday mass in Burkina Faso, two others remain in the hospital. A local church official says that it was a terrorist attack. No group has claimed responsibility. But suspicion has fallen on a Muslim extremist group that has targeted several remote communities in the West African nation. While the European farmers' protests are escalating amid clashes in Belgium between demonstrators and police. Brussels police say that 900 tractors entered the city around the European Council building where the ministers were meeting. Protesters set fire to piles of tires and a few vehicles forced their way through a barrier. The farmers are angry that their demands are not being met and have voiced concerns over environmental policies and a shortage of grain supplies. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including attack ads. The governor of California launches advertisements against pro-life measures. And lawmakers push for conscious protections amid the DOD's abortion policy. Well, the Democrat governor of California has launched an ad campaign targeting pro-life proposals in several Republican states. Governor Gavin Newsom says the ads will speak out against states considering measures to prohibit out-of-state travel for abortions. The first TV commercial airs today in Tennessee. Lawmakers there are considering an abortion trafficking bill that would make it a felony to recruit or transport a minor to get an abortion without parental consent. More than 8,000 service members were kicked out of the U.S. military for refusing to take the COVID vaccine. And now some pro-life senators think that could happen again, this time over the Defense Department's abortion travel policy. So they are taking the steps to prevent it. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales has more on that story. Eric? Good evening. Two Republican senators recently wrote to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin demanding answers concerning conscious protections for officers required to carry out the administration's military abortion and travel policy. One of them, Senate Minority Whip John Thune, tells me the DOD's abortion travel policy needs to be clarified to ensure conscious rights are not violated. We're trying to get at this and, and make sure that people aren't being kicked out or forced out of the military because they're having to implement a policy with which they fundamentally disagree. So you've, you've actually heard of examples of this? Yes. Since Roe was overturned, the DOD is now using taxpayer dollars to pay for administrative absences and travel for military members to get an abortion in another state. Senator Thune and Senate Pro-Life Caucus Chair Cindy Hyde-Smith wrote the DOD policy, quote, is a blatant and run around the Hyde Amendment. Not only is this policy a violation of the spirit of the law, it threatens to violate the sincerely held moral and religious convictions of the men and women burdened with implementing it. 
But the Pentagon defends the policy and says it won't change it. The department does not have an abortion policy. We have um, we have a health care policy and we have a travel policy that allows for our service members to take advantage of health care that should be accessible to them. Senator Tommy Tuberville blocked over 400 military nominations for 10 months in an unsuccessful effort to get the policy changed. Pro-life Senator Bill Cassidy, a doctor, says the military runs into trouble when it tries to run roughshod over service members' conscious rights. You want folks to have the conscience. And if the military attempts to kind of dictate to them what their conscience is, that's what they do in totalitarian states. That's not what they do in the United States of America. They ought to be insulated and protected from being forced out or, or feeling like they have to leave their jobs in the military um, because of a, of a policy which is, uh, one, fundamentally wrong, and two, at odds and in violation of existing precedent policy and laws that have been in effect for decades. Meanwhile, lawmakers are still negotiating the Pentagon spending bill, including the abortion travel policy. Democrats continue to say that they will not support any poison pill policies like pro-life measures. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, pushing for peace. A look at Vatican efforts to find peace in Ukraine two years into the war. Plus, guiding light. The Holy Father has advice for keeping Jesus front and center in our lives. Welcome back. Pope Francis has accepted the resignation of an archbishop in Poland who is accused of ignoring claims of clergy abuse. No official reason was given for the departure of 71-year-old Archbishop Andrzej Jengi, in a two-page resignation note, he apologized to his brother priest, saying that he was stepping down because of, quote, a radical weakening of my condition. A church leader here in the U.S. is calling for an increase to humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Bishop Elias Zidan, the head of the USCCB Committee on International Justice and Peace, says in part in a statement, quote, I join with our Holy Father in calling for an end to the violence in Ukraine. Over the weekend, many took part in a day of prayer and fasting for an end to the war. Well, two years after the war in Ukraine began, the Vatican remains active in discussions to bring the conflict to an end. EW10 Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tonhauser has more. For two years, Pope Francis has called for an end to the war in Ukraine, inviting the faithful to pray for the martyred Ukrainian people. The Holy Father has organized several special moments of prayer. In March 2022, for example, he consecrated Ukraine and Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in St. Peter's Basilica. And only a few months ago, in October 2023, he called for a day of penance, fasting and prayer. Again, Pope Francis implored Mary's help for peace. And he did not stop only at prayer. The Vatican has also taken concrete steps to end the ongoing war. As you may remember, Tracy, immediately... After the Russian invasion, the Holy Father visited the Russian embassy to the Holy See, something that is really rarely heard of. He still made it a point to express his opposition to the war. And a few days later, he also reached out to Kirill, the Patriarch of Moscow, imploring him to help stop the atrocities. Last May, Pope Francis received Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. After many phone calls, this was the first in-person meeting during the war. 
The Holy See also used other high-ranking church officials to broker for peace. Cardinal Matteo Zuppi would be an example, who is the president of the Italian Bishops' Conference. He went as the Pope's special envoy to Russia, to the United States and to China. Apart from diplomacy, two other cardinals were sent to bring solidarity and closeness to the refugees and victims of war. One was the papal almoner Cardinal Konrad Krajewski and the head of the castery for the integral human development, who is Cardinal Michael Czerny. Many church institutions were quick to bring relief to the Ukrainian population. Caritas Internationalis, for example, led the charge. In its recently published report, it pointed out that it has given direct help to more than 3.8 million people over the past two years. Currently, 40% of the population is still in need of humanitarian assistance and more than 6 million Ukrainians have become refugees. So Tracy, as we have often reported, Pope Francis has always expressed his intention to go to Kiev also personally. For health and security concerns, that has not been possible so far. Yesterday at the Angelus, he did say that he hopes to see an end of the war soon. In Rome, Andreas Tonhauser, EWTN News Nightly. On Friday night, Pope Francis reminds the faithful that God is light and in seeking him, we will find mercy and hope. E tenendo gli occhi fissi sulla meta, tracciavano solchi diretti. At his Sunday address at the Vatican, the Holy Father said that we should keep our eyes on Christ because he wants to be with us on the journey of life. We remain close to him primarily in confession and in the Eucharist. The Holy Father gave his remarks after recovering on Saturday from what the Vatican said were light, light flu-like symptoms. And we are praying for the Holy Father. Now we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.